The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss a little something. How to build a flying saucer. Sounds a little ridiculous, right? May not be as ridiculous as you think. So tonight, we're going to be reading from a book written by one Mr. William Lyne, who, if you're not familiar with his backstory, claims to have worked with various government organizations in the past, and he knew some things that he probably shouldn't have known, and he had done a lot of research into the works of Nikola Tesla and others. And he understood that the bulk of what we call the UFO phenomenon and what largely is called the field of ufology was a type of psychological warfare operation inculcated by the intelligence agencies. So he talked about that, and he talked about how they kept hidden technologies from the people of America and from the people of the world for various reasons. And in this book, he exposes some of what they had done through various programs and various different events that happened in the world. And as I always caution you, you do have to take some of this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no absolute gauge as to the truthfulness of what's being said here. But what I do know is that he bases a lot of these technologies he talks about on the work of Nikola Tesla and on the work of what was known as the ether physics movement of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And these types of sciences fell away with the advent of Albert Einstein's relativity theory, which, by the way, most of Einstein's work was stolen from a guy named Henri Poincaré. And that's what they won't tell you in the history books, but uh, at any rate, Einstein, this construct that became Einstein, changed the face of our modern scientific thought processes. And in so doing, we lost sight of much of this ether physics, and there were very many of these physicists of that time that had a much better understanding of, first of all, the nature of electricity and magnetism, and also as to how these physical properties interacted in this world. And this was before the large-scale application of what came to be known as quantum. Quantum physics and all of this reification that everything has to break down to a fundamental particle to make things operate in this world... And that's a nonsensical principle in and of itself, because if they can't find a fundamental particle attached to some phenomena, they will make one up out of thin air, and then they will search for it, and sooner or later they will find it with their supercomputer through some algorithm. <laughs> and they'll name it something else. Yes, are there fundamental particles? Absolutely there are. But does everything operate on the basis of particle interactions? No. And that's where in our modern science, in my estimation, gets things wrong. And this gentleman was of the same mindset. And I think some of the things that he describes in his books 
And he had another book that was called Occult Ether Physics that he published before this one. That's very interesting. That gives you an overview of what his concept looks like, of how he thinks these different forces operate in this world. And much of what he talks about aligns with a lot of the old mystery school teachings and the metaphysical side of the coin that is our understanding of this world. So, with that being the case, I think he got some of the concepts right. I think he tried to steer them more into the modern thinking paradigm than perhaps the description of them really fits. And in so doing, I think he lost some people on his ideas here. But certainly, they seem to align with things that I have seen and studied and understand. So, uh, with that being said, I think that this description that he gives here, in this book that we'll be reading through, is probably going in the right direction for how to pull something like this off, how to build an operational flying saucer. And I'll make some different notations and give my thoughts at certain points here when we stop. But first, we're going to preface it. We're going to preface his section here on how to build a flying saucer by first giving you a little bit of his backstory here as to why he felt it necessary to write his books and expose the things he did. So we're going to read just a little portion here before we get into the main portion that I wanted to read from about building a flying saucer. So we'll do that here first. I thought this was an apropos kind of thing to talk about. What with all the UFO hype in the news as of late. <laughs> all these balloons everywhere and pseudo balloons or whatever they want to claim these things are now. You know, all of these things that uh, the Biden administration is now having the military shoot out of the sky that all of a sudden have emerged here over the course of the past week, week and a half. Craziness. Absolute craziness. I guess, as Clyde Lewis always says, it's business as usual in the apocalypse, right? So, <laughs> if that's the case, uh, we're seeing a lot of things coming to fruition in front of our eyes that uh, we've been talking about for years. And are they really going to start pushing the alien agenda now? We'll, we'll see. Only time will tell with that. But... Uh, at any rate, we need to understand that this whole idea of flying saucer tech and UFOs, there's man-made technologies that have been developed, and there is a lineage of this research you could follow back to real human beings constructing real operational craft of this sort, going back to the likes of Tesla, uh, the likes of Dr. T. Townsend Brown, who came up with a little project called Project Winter Haven that he presented to the Naval Department in the 1950s. And at that time, the very same year that he presented this to the Naval Department, NASA was invented out of the National Aeronautics Association. It wasn't the National uh, Aeronautics and Space Administration. It was just the National Aeronautics Administration at that point. They transformed it into NASA, and then everything on what they called electrogravitic research went deep black and disappeared out of all the public literature. 1957. And you'll find very, very few articles or any kind of writings about electrogravitic propulsion systems 
beyond the 1950s. You might find one or two from the 1960s, but those are very difficult to find now as well. It's hard to find any of this material at this point. It's been scrubbed off of the internet and largely disappeared. But there were a lot of public articles in the 1950s propounding the importance and the scientific developments of electrogravitic propulsion systems and how they were just on the precipice of being able to accomplish this. So this is all public record. And uh, let's, without further ado, we'll, we'll get into this and we'll discuss here, we'll read William Lyne's reasoning for why he does this. And it's only a little short section and then we'll get into the meat of the matter. So bear with me here. So let's begin. In the face of huge economic losses we are experiencing daily from technology concealment, some may ask what the harm is in the government's herding a bunch of naturally superstitious suckers into a New Age religion when they might otherwise have been under the spell of some other form of mystical or spiritual scam anyway. My answer is such matters exceed the jurisdictional limits of our Constitution, that our Constitution places on our government, and that this outrageous secret government program for the subliminal manipulation of we the people is a religious mind control psychopolitical brainwashing scheme run by Big Brother, which has at least four very damaging results as follows. Number one, it is an unconstitutional violation of our First Amendment rights in which the government is secretly doing what it is forbidden openly to do by law, namely sponsoring an establishment of religion, abridging the principle of the separation of church and state. And number two, it fraudulently conceals and misrepresents material facts from we the people to our detriment and the corporate fascists' benefits. And number three, it promotes the educational, intellectual, scientific, and moral decline of we the people by concealing knowledge and inducing dishonesty, psychological disorientation, and detrimental reliance on ignorance, mysticism, and superstition in people who need rational guidance. And number four, it violates the fundamental democratic right to government by consent of the governed through secret subliminal manipulation of we the people who cannot consent to things being done to us by Big Brother in our own name without our knowledge. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So these are the opinions of William Lyne. I don't think he's totally wrong on this. I totally think that uh, these people who've inculcated themselves in positions of power within government organizations and quasi-government organizations who actually manipulate us, the social controllers, the social engineers of this world. I think they are in the wrong for doing this, for various of these moral reasonings here. And that absolutely is the state of how we are today. What's been done, we have been purposely dumbed down, in a sense, here. But let's continue on, because he continues, he doubles down on what he's saying here, and continues to state these things that... I think are pretty obvious to us today. Those in the NSA and CIA believe they can do whatever they want and get away with it because their activities are secret. The secrecy protects the Illuminati from the consequences of their illegal acts. Without evidence, what can we prove? 
There is no legitimate authority for the CIA to extend its covert operations under its clandestine services into our domestic lives, producing the illegal and bizarre effects and damages which these operations show. There was never any legitimate authorization for these unconstitutional activities from the outset. When they were commenced through a fraud on the American people, when the bankers created false authority for the United Nations, the NSA and the CIA, at a time when the people were preoccupied with celebrating the end of World War II, congressional approval of the National Security Act was entirely circumvented in secret meetings, such as that held by the Council on Foreign Relations on January 8th, 1968, at their home, the Harold Pratt House, Park Avenue, New York City, chaired by C. Douglas Dillon, private investment banker. These operations are approved by the Illuminati without official status or legitimate authority to secure their own corporate fascist power. The Fraudulent Act was never an act of Congress, since it just went into effect through the coercive effects of the power of money and political influence exerted by the CFR. This book gives the public the wherewithal to reverse these sickening policies and to provide a means for obtaining unheard-of freedom and prosperity through openness, free competition, knowledge, creativity, and reason, by rejection of the secrecy, which is the basis for the lies, and by our acceptance of flying saucer knowledge, just the kind of things which the pseudo-Illuminati hypocritically claim to promote. And I'm going to pause right there for a moment, folks. So, the inference here is that this type of UFO flying saucer type technology, the knowledge of how these technologies operate, would be game-changing. I mean, we're talking like free energy, things of that nature. That's why they're kept hidden, you see. How do you put a, how do you put a meter on a device that could generate energy? just seemingly out of thin air. Can't really do it effectively if everybody knows how to produce one. If everybody could get their hands on one and have one, would be maybe a one-time purchase, wouldn't it? If you could have a free energy generator attached to your house, supply all the energy you need for anything. These are the types of technologies that are claimed to be hidden within the black budget projects of the military-industrial complex within the special access programs. Foundationally transformational things that would give us a new era of prosperity that would be unimaginable for most of us in the modern world here. These are the types of things that are purported. So Mr. Line feels the need to expose some of these things in his book, and I don't remember when this was written. I believe it was written in the 1980s at some point, late 1980s, maybe early 1990s, when this book was published. But he had done several books, and they're very interesting for sure. <laughs> and he does tend to give out a lot of good information from what I've seen. So I think it's worth consideration maybe consider the things he's presenting here. So let's continue on, because this will be the lead-in into how to build a flying saucer. In 1894, before the Ford Model T had been created by Henry Ford, 
Tesla had already tested his flying saucer propulsion theory, as confirmed by statements to the FBI in 1943 by a New York socialite named Marguerite Merrington, who witnessed metallic plate suspensions in statements taken just after Tesla's death and shown on a list of persons associated with Nikola Tesla. The FBI and CIA censors missed this small reference and failed to black it out. They did, however, release a misinformational and tampered photocopy of a 9-22-40 article by William L. Lawrence in the New York Times entitled Death Ray for Planes. In that article, they stated that only two of the four parts had been tested and substituted the word repelling for propelling, as discussed on page 22 and 23 of this book, to coincide with misinformation in the HARP patent. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. We looked at and covered briefly things described in the HARP patent on another program here. Well, this is the very same thing Mr. Line is referencing here. These technologies that were lifted from Tesla, Tesla technologies, were used in the HARP patent as well. And we went over the various usages thereof. But let's continue on. The copy of the news article, I have backups, what I say. The cutaway drawing is a close approximation of Tesla's Fliver machine. And he has an, a, a sketch here of what looks like a very boxy-looking device with a man crouched down inside of it. It's got four feet on it. It's very square-looking. It's got rounded edges, though. And it's a big metallic box. And he claims that this is a drawing. And he's seen the, the work on Tesla's Fliver machine, that's F-L-I-V-V-E-R. And this was allegedly an anti-gravity craft that Tesla developed. Now, it's hard to find anything in Tesla's writings about something like this. He does have a patent for a type of aerial vehicle that looks more like a helicopter-type technology that you could find publicly. But he claims that this was released in FBI documents regarding Nikola Tesla in a 1980s FOIA request. And that's where he got the sketches here from and the information. So then he goes into the next section here on how to build a flying saucer. And we'll see he does have perspectives that harken back to the ether physics of the 1800s and early 1900s. The things they were discovering about electricity, magnetism, those were exciting times in the realm of science, of physics. Learning these things, understanding these things, and actually doing real-world experimentation on these things. Things like Tesla did. He experimented and built things that actually worked. He was able to test them and figured out various aspects of things, and pretty much he's the guy that shaped our modern world. All of our technologies we have are based upon Tesla, Tesla technologies. He in invented alternating current. Well, he discovered alternating current, I should say. I shouldn't say he invented it, 
but alternating current is largely attributed to Nikola Tesla. If he hadn't popularized it and found ways to make these different types of devices that he had, then we wouldn't have an AC power generation today. Would have probably been largely direct current DC, because that's what Edison was working on. But at any rate, let's get right into it here. So, how to build a flying saucer. And first he gives the author's disclaimer, and, you know, I think that's a fair disclaimer for me to give here as well. In consideration of the author's sale and of the reader's purchase or reading of this book, the purchaser or reader is hereby deemed to understand and agree to the following. Number one, that he or she assumes all physical risks of any harm to anyone attendant to the constructing, testing, flying, or attempting to fly a flying saucer constructed as herein suggested. Number two, that the author assumes no liability whatsoever, either civil or criminal, as to these suggested plans or the theories contained herein, and is hereby released from any and all liability or claim or allegation of liability. And I will add that this podcast host also claims that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I also will say that I'll... I would want no part of any liability if somebody out there attempts to build one of these things and has something bad happen. So I'm just telling you, I'm just reading verbatim from his book. This is what he says, and I'll give you a little bit of insights I've had from studying the subject. I'm in no position myself to try to build one of these things, but perhaps there's handy people out there that are interested in experimentation, much like Nikola Tesla was. So... That's why we read these kind of things, because it is an interesting topic. And there are some folks out there who would probably like to figure this stuff out. There was a gentleman named John Hutchinson out there years ago now, who's largely disappeared. His presence online has disappeared. But he constructed all kinds of electrical generating devices and was able to achieve all kinds of interesting effects, which he has a video of that was posted out there on the internet. I don't know if you could find that stuff still today, but it's fascinating stuff. Same types of things. He took Tesla technologies and Tesla-based things and was able to produce some startling effects just by ramping up the electricity and the amperage and voltage of different things. Experimented a lot. And he was actually one of the guys that did that would do the actual experimentation and tinker with things. You don't have a lot of that anymore. It's just a lot of physicists sitting around theorizing now. But, uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of the school of thought this guy, this William Lyon, comes from when he's putting this stuff out. So anyway, let's get back on with the disclaimer before we get into the meat of the matter here. Number three, that the purchaser or reader who is presumed to be an ordinary, reasonable, and prudent person with control over his or her decisions and actions is urged to respect the obvious and inherent dangers of electricity, the force of gravity, and flight, and to become familiar with the pertinent FAA regulations and applicable state and federal laws, if any, and hereby assumes complete responsibility for all such particulars. Number four, it is hereby agreed and understood that these plans are hypothetical, provided only for the purpose of the investigation and understanding of flying saucer theory, flight, and construction, and that the author gives no warranty, either express or implied, that a flying saucer constructed according to these plans will work or be safe to the operator or others. 
And I'll pause there, folks, to say same applies to this broadcaster here. <laughs> I, I won't say for sure that this will work for you. I won't make any of those claims. But it seems to be a good foundation based upon some of the principles that I've seen in the works of Dr. T. Townsend Brown and the things that he had discovered and put out there in the literature, as well as some of the things that you can find in the public literature on Tesla and various others. So some of these things seem like they may have a basis in which they can work. But it, it, the whole premise of how they work would depend on an entirely different physics than what we're used to in the mainstream, you see. And that's where and it gets interesting because it falls back on this earlier type of physics that was largely held in high regards in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the ether physics model, which is the diametric opposite of what we're handed today with all the quantum nonsense. So let's read on. Now we have general considerations. First, it is recommended that a flying model be built and tested before proceeding further, as it would be very disappointing to build an elaborate saucer which doesn't work. The fundamental principle is simple. To electromagnetically synthesize momentum, employing a high-voltage DC brush discharge in the direction of desired acceleration to draw in and cause the exchange of ether carriers, which also brings in the tubes of electrical force, and to cause the tubes to dissolve in the conductors of the ship, which imparts momentum to the conductors at 90 degrees to the electric current and magnetic inductance in order to facilitate the dissolution of the tubes of force, an alternating current of sufficiently high frequency is utilized on the opposite end of the ship to compress and block the ether carriers and tubes of force so that they cannot pass out the rear and are thereby forced to dissolve to impart momentum in the opposite direction. The hole should then sorry, the hull should be accelerated, creating electromagnetic momentum in the desired direction almost instantaneously. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So that sounds like a complicated kind of a thing to say. Now, let's pause with what he's describing here, and I'll explain a little something. When he's talking about these tubes of force, okay, within the ether... This is wherein people may get a little lost because we're not taught to think in the ether physics model of things. So in the ether physics model of things, the ether, this is the medium in which everything exists. This is the medium in which light manifests. Now you could compare it to sound and Nikola Tesla has compared light to sound. He has said that essentially that light is nothing more than a sound wave in the ether, that they're very similar or connected forces. Now, when you understand how sound works, sound is something that manifests in the medium that is the air. So you see, it needs this medium to transverse, to traverse, to travel through. Well, everything else, even light, needs a medium to travel through. So the, it's a misnomer to say that there's this actual quote-unquote vacuum that they claim is outer space and various other things, that this absolute vacuum and that the energy comes from the vacuum. Have you heard of zero-point energy that comes from the vacuum? 
Vacuum's a misdescription of the ether, folks. It's just a reification to align with quantum theory and Einsteinian theory. What they're describing is the ether by other names. <laughs> See, and it doesn't matter what you call it. But uh, the whole point here. So he talks about what happens when there's an application of a high voltage direct current discharge. This causes the ether to shift. And how the ether shifts, it creates a wave in the ether, but it's a longitudinal wave. All right. So if you're thinking, if you want to, um, how, what's, what's the best way for me to, to describe the difference in wave types here? Um, so your regular wave, like say, for example, you take a small bit of rope and you hold it between your two hands and you let the, the rope hang down a little bit. It's slack. So then say you raise up your right hand and then whip it back down. Well, then the rope will kind of squiggle across to your left hand and that energy or momentum will travel in that way. That's how a regular waveform works. Well, this is a longitudinal waveform that travels through the ether. So it's a compression wave that travels through. So this would be more akin if you were to hold like say a ruler or something between your two hands and you just push the whole thing to the left, right? So you push the whole thing, the whole thing moves at the same time. So it's the entire compression moves in the same direction, same time. So this is probably the best way to audibly describe it without a visual for context here that I could express. So this creates a compression wave. So it moves just straight rather than uh, squiggling up and down as the rope would, you see. So it moves straight and this punches a hole in the ether. So this is what this tubes of force idea that he's speaking about is. And there's another name for this concept, folks, that I don't think the guy was aware of when he wrote this. And that's called a scalar wave. This is how scalar wave technology works. And absolutely, these things are connected. So that being the case, this creates a scalar wave discharge in the ether. And in so doing, it opens up a hole in the ether, which creates the, the effect wherein the craft or whatever generates the wave will move towards that hole to fill that void because nature absolutely abhors a vacuum. And there is no true vacuum, but this is about the closest approximation we get to a vacuum is when you use an electrical current like this to punch a hole in the ether. So this is what they're referring to. This is what he's referring to when he's talking about these tubes of force. He creates these tubes of force with the direct current, the high voltage direct current electricity. And it opens up this pathway through the ether and it causes the forward momentum of the craft or the object in that direction. Now, he also says that you apply in an alternating current on the back side here, on the back side, an alternating current, because what happens if you just produce this direct current, the tubes of force, as he calls them, in the ether wave, in this longitudinal wave in the ether, will quickly fill back in and go out to both sides of the craft or the object. 
because it punches a, a large hole through the ether, and that, that transverses the entire wavelength of the ether, for lack of better terminology. I know I'm probably butchering this idea. I could picture it in my brain, but it's hard to describe audibly here. So what he's describing is if you don't have some type of a, an electrical alternating current on the back end that actually stops this discharge, this discharge from behind from happening, if you don't have that, then it's not going to move, you see. So you need both. You need a direct current on the front side and an alternating current on the back side, and that's how in you can create this type of movement. Now, some of this falls back on T. Townsend Brown's idea of his discovery of what's called the Townsend, or it's called the, the Byfield-Brown effect. Uh, himself and uh, his mentor, Dr. Byfield, experimented with this and found that when you charge an electrical capacitor plate, it causes a type of movement. Now, much of the modern physicists in this day and age will claim that this just creates ion wind. And it's just ion wind that they that they uh, witnessed there. But Dr. Brown was a lot smarter than that. This is not ion wind. This was something completely different. This was something that he based his project Winter Haven on and was able to demonstrate undeniably to the Naval Department that this worked. And this Byfield-Brown effect, I think, is the key to how you would create electrogravitic propulsion systems, as they were called. It's just, I don't think Dr. Brown got all the way there with how to get it done, because he, he charged capacitor plates, and then he would discharge the capacitor plates and create this movement. Now, what Dr. Lyon is saying here, based upon some of the things that Tesla observed, is you have, you have to have the direct current electricity, the high-voltage direct current, on the front side, the, the direction you want this thing to move towards. And then you have to put a type of a buffer on the back of alternating current to compress and block the ether carriers and the tubes of force. Because if you don't, they're going to shoot out the front and the back. But if they shoot only out the front, then this will cause the object itself to propel forward, you see. So this is how it's claimed that it works. And as an interesting side note, if you listened to anything Bob Lazar said when talking about these alleged UFO craft that he worked on at Area 51, he talked about how their propulsion system worked in a very similar fashion here. But he tried to describe it, of course, according to quantum theory, and he tried to describe it in regards to some secret element as a power source being the key to all of this and that's all a misnomer and misinformation in my view so he was describing the same effect here he tried to come up with an alternative way to describe it he, he described it as being the manipulation of gravity waves he separated them into two different forms that align with what our modern physics would tell you with quantum theory he called them gravity a and gravity b and gravity A is the gra gravity we're familiar with, and gravity B would be the gravity on a microscale, which is congruent with what they call the strong force and the weak force in nu the nucleus of atoms and stuff like that. 
there's this strong force and this weak force. These are the generally known forces in physics that are known, that are described today. So he equated that to the strong force. So this is what they would call microgravity, and that is what he claimed that the propulsion system manipulated using the rare element 115 that was not naturally produced here on Earth, and at the time that he disclosed this, there was no such element, but since then, they've manufactured it in labs, small amounts of it, that only last for, like, nanoseconds or something, they claim. So, at any rate... The whole idea of the propulsion system of the craft was tied to these quantum ideas of microgravity relating to the strong nuclear force and this mysterious element that nobody could get a hold of, thus putting the idea that perhaps a human being could duplicate this technology out of the minds of anybody listening, because you would need you know, special access to things like that, right, by the military-industrial complex to make something like this work. Well, this is a lot more simplistic way of describing the same thing. It has to do with scalar waves and electrical currents. The combination of direct current, high voltage direct current, with also an equal current of alternating current on the backside, creating these pathways in the ether and understanding ether theory. Like I said, it's an alternative type of physics that we're not accustomed to in the modern day because they tried to put it all behind us and bury it with the work of Einstein and those that came after with all the quantum nonsense because, of course, it all comes down to interaction of fundamental, fundamental particles with a lot of these people. It's the atomistic philosophy in full view today. And it doesn't always work that way. But anyway... Long story short, that's what Dr. or I don't know if uh, Mr. Line was a doctor. I don't think he was. But that's what William Line is describing here, right? And these are the kinds of things that Tesla jotted down in his notes as well, these types of ideas. This is the same thing that if you actually study this phenomena, you see in the works of Dr. T. Townsend Brown with the study of the electrogravitic propulsion systems and such as that, as they were called back then. They were also called dynamic counterberry. That's another old term that you could look at for this, because Dr. Brown began working on this in the 1920s. So, dynamic counterberry. I don't know if you'll actually find that search return anymore. That's another one they've scrubbed from the net, because you were, would be able to get more documentation of various things that you wouldn't find by searching under electrogravitics by using that term. And this is something I noticed a few years back now, that uh, if you type dynamic counterberry into the browser, you'll get next to nothing back on returns, or nothing of importance anyway, or nothing related to the topic. So that being the case, it's one of the ways they obfuscate things. Uh, so let's put it that way. But um, it seems to me that Mr. Line here had a good idea what he was talking about. So these are the theoretical concepts on how a flying saucer propulsion system would work. And this is the model of ether physics that describes this. Okay, It works in the ether physics model. They have to do mental gymnastics to make it work using a quantum 
model. And thus you come up with nonsensical things like element 115 and, you know, gravity A, gravity B, <laughs> you know, microgravity uh, waveforms and stuff like that. A has anybody ever seen a gravity wave? Is there really such a thing? And that, that's, that's another question, because here's the misnomer with a wave. A wave is an action. It's something that a thing does. So, gravity. Does it have an energetic manifestation in the, in the form of a waveform, like electricity clearly does? Now, I would argue that it seems to me, just from the things that I've studied and looked at, that uh, electricity, magnetism gravity are all one and the same force it's just a different way in which it manifests you see so that being the case they're all interrelated and it's just misdescribed to us because they like to convolute things make them more complex than they need to be for you to understand and i think this ether physics model is a better viewpoint to look at the workings of this stuff from it seems to align better. But anyway, let's continue reading because I, I just did a whole lot of side trailing there. And we got a lot more to cover. So, next here it says, A Tesla coil is used to create a negative DC brush discharge on one electrode. And another Tesla coil is used on the opposite electrode to create an AC high frequency which compresses the ether carriers and tubes of force and blocks their passage. Going to pause for a second there, folks, and I apologize for pausing so much, but there's just so many things to cover here. So essentially, these what he's saying here is this compresses the ether, the ether carriers, as he calls them, and the tubes of force and blocks their passage. So this is akin to scalar technology. Like I said, it's a scalar wave by another description here, describing how a scalar wave would work in the ether physics model, creates this tube of force within the ether itself, which generates and permeates through the entirety of the ether in one direction or two directions. And that's wherein the problem would lie, because if it were to go off in both directions, well, it would cause no net movement. But if it travels only in one direction then it would generate movement. So do you, do you understand a little better how this works? I hope I'm making sense to you folks out there. So at any rate, so that's what he says here. So then let's read on. These two electrodes comprise a P2, two different primaries, one the DC brush, which draws in the tubes of force, and the other the AC current, which blocks the ether carriers and forces the tubes of force to dissolve. The DC brush produces negative, or hairy corona, as it's called, and the high-frequency AC produces positive, or cloudy corona. It is believed that this system not only creates instant momentum in the direction of the DC brush, but eliminates the problem of inertia in the direction of the AC high-frequency current, so that the rate of acceleration is virtually unlimited, and the destructive effect of acceleration is eliminated since all parts of the ship and its contents are accelerated at the same rate without inertia. This also applies to instant turns in which the force of acceleration acts on all parts of the ship and its contents to reorient the force of momentum on each atom and molecule in the new direction, eliminating centrifu centrifugal force. The kind of ship shown by these plans, however, 
is of what I call the linear type, which turns in a curving path rather than in sharp angles, because this type of ship is easier to construct and control. In order to properly control the currents from the Tesla coils, specially designed switches, relays, capacitors, dielectrics, inductors, and conductors are required. In these hypothetical plans, I provide my own design, which could conceivably be built by a skilled home craftsman. I also describe what I believe to be a control system, which will be practical, reliable, and easy to construct, probably similar to what Tesla used on his Fliver machine, his manned electropropulsive ship of the earliest type. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, we see... The way he's describing this perfectly describes how the flying saucers or UFOs have been described in moving through the years. Also aligns with what Bob Lazar has said, just described differently with a different model of physics, you see. And there are those within the aerospace corporations and the subcontractors for the government agencies that do special access programs that understand this different physics, this ether physics. And they apply that to some of their craft designs. Won't tell you that, though. That's proprietary information, so they don't have to disclose that. But absolutely, there have been whistleblowers that have come out from these corporations and said such things, notably ones like Ben Rich has come out and said various things through the years that people find very interesting, as well as, uh, um, I can't think of the other gentleman's name. He did a lot of videos before he passed away. I think his name was Boyd something or another, if I remember correctly. Boyd Bushman, that's what it is. He also came forward, described various aspects of how some of these craft work. They both worked for Lockheed, both of these gentlemen. Made some claims that some of them sound a little nonsensical and ridiculous, but some of them actually sound like they might have merit to them. So the usual way in which misinformation or disinformation can work. They give you good information and they give you just a bit of nonsense to discredit the good information. So that's what's been done with some of these people. But at any rate, this works in a similar fashion to what's been described in all kinds of different ways here. So that being said, let's get back into the reading here. Size and shape... Since this ship is to be of the simplest type, it is no larger than required for one or two people. It is designed to be as small as possible, yet to have the necessary equipment and space for comfort. The general shape of the craft can be described as an oblate spheroid. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Sound familiar? An oblate spheroid? Don't get Neil deGrasse Tyson on the line, right? So... Uh, the general shape of the craft can be described as an oblate spheroid, the shape of a moving point charge system. The first manned ship built by Tesla was described as the approximate size and shape of a gas stove, which would be of a sort of long rectangular box on legs. The legs were presumably standoff insulators so the craft could get off the ground. I assume that it was of the linear type, with Tesla crouched inside, perhaps on some sort of support which allowed his hands to be free for the controls. Uh, 
with his head pointed toward a small window at one end, electromagnets on the front with switching and polarity provisions to divert the brush to the right or left would allow for complete control with the buoyancy control determining altitude. The bottom and rear would be activated by high-frequency AC blocking current. If Tesla wanted to turn right, he would use the electromagnets to divert the brush so that the right corner was pulled as the air pressure would cause the ship to swing around in a circular turn. To go down, all he had to do was to diminish the current to the top brush. Since the most efficient application of electrical energy is desired, to conserve energy and to transmit the respective propulsive force effectively with the least expenditure of energy, it is recommended to use rounded surfaces similar to the design of electrostatic generators, the design of corona rings, or the design used by Tesla in his Wardenclyffe Tower electrodes, rather than sharp points, shapes, or edges which tend to cause point discharge, the wasteful and uncoordinated leakage of electrical charges into space in a manner which is unproductive. Since the primary function is to get the ship off the ground and to remain stable while hovering, the upper surface area is generally a horizontal surface, but is spheroidally curved and somewhat symmetrical. I call the electrode from which a brush discharge is emitted at the center top of the ship the buoyancy electrode. This electrode is used at almost all times during flight, in addition to an electrode which may be activated at the front of the ship to cause horizontal acceleration and to turn the ship. Apparently, the ship will not work without the high-frequency AC blocking and compressing current to the rear and on the bottom. Otherwise, anything with a DC brush discharge would take off and fly away at fantastic speed. There is always an equal and opposite reaction. In order for there to be a reaction, there must be a disturbance to the equilibrium. As the ether carriers continue to exchange, bringing in the tubes of force, there is nothing to prevent them from passing out the other end of the ship, so that there would be no reaction and the ship would acquire no momentum. As Tesla said, the AC current at the rear and bottom of the ship, when of sufficiently high frequency, will draw ether carriers and tubes of force to itself until they are so compressed that no further action will occur. This is apparently intended to block the field of gravity and to block inertia, like Dr. Cavour's door painted with the Cavourite, and to force the tubes of force in the ship's forward conductors to dissolve so that momentum is imparted to the conductors and the ship to which they are attached, as J.J. Thompson said. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's quoting some other people that have looked at these ideas and made different claims with it. And absolutely, it seems to me that this seems like a logical way of thinking. Because as we expressed, we can see the proof of concept with the works of T. Townsend Brown. And see, that's the thing. I would not take something like this claim that he's making seriously were there not some documented source wherein these things have actual merits to them. And that would be the works of Dr. T. Townsend Brown, the Project Winter Haven. That's probably the best you know, a source you could find on Townsend Brown's work, Project Winter Haven. So this is the thing, proof of concept in Townsend Brown's work. And here it is. So they have 
actual blueprints on how to build these things. And this is the idea that uh, Mr. Line puts forward here. How to build this. And it's all about the high voltage direct current charge at the front of the ship. And the AC blocking current, the high frequency blocking current, alternating current on the back side of the ship. To produce what essentially is this scalar wave system of propulsion. So, that being the case, seems logical, seems like it might work. think these are ideas that are worth looking at, for sure. So let's read on, because next he talks about the power system. One of Tesla's patents, Method for Signaling, patent number 723188, which has the two primaries marked as P1 and P2, possibly the origin of the title P2 given to the 1935-1938 New Mexico project run by Dr. Von Braun, shows an oscillator system having two separate pancake coils, tuned differently, running off a common rotary spark gap and dynamo. A copy of the drawing from the patent follows, and he has a drawing here of this patent and how it works. And they are indeed two pancake-shaped coils. If one coil is tuned to one quarter wavelength and the other to a full wavelength, they would comprise a DC brush circuit and a high-frequency AC current, respectively. The AC circuit could be run at all times on the bottom and rear, with the brush being activated at the top to lift off and the front to go forward or turn. I can't recommend a better prime mover than the Tesla turbine because of its compactness, lightweight, and efficiency. Below are excerpts from Tesla's turbine patent, 1061206, and related valvular conduit patent, 1329559. Two conduits supply air and gas respectively to the firing chamber in the second turbine. The second edition of Free Energy Surprise, when issued, will include my complete set of plans redesigned to be constructed using basic machine tools for the home builder. And I don't know if Mr. Line was ever able to produce that book, Free Energy Surprise, the second edition thereof, to see what he puts down there to build. Let's continue on, though. The turbine shown will produce at least 30 brake horsepower and operate at about 30,000 RPMs and should weigh no more than 10 pounds, including the valvular conduits and firing chamber. The firing chamber has a glow plug, the kind used in model airplane engines, and fires in a reverberatory way. The explosions come in rapid succession, producing a continuous supply of expanding hot gases, which enter the turbine on its outer edge as shown, and spiral between the discs toward the vents, which are near the center shaft. I have routed the exhaust out one side of the turbine through a single exhaust vent rather than on both sides, as Tesla did, to diminish turbulence, and to free one side of the turbine for the bearing mount and connection to the gearbox and mounting plate. The exploding gases will now not blow back through the valvular conduit, which was Tesla's valve system having no moving parts, and will continue to move into the turbine inlet vent as the combustion chamber continues to produce the pressurized gases. Judging from the fact that the turbine will produce 30 horsepower on 125 pounds of steam, it should produce more horsepower on propane or gasoline and 
that should be adequate. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, you could just run it either on steam power or gasoline or propane power. You don't need element 115. <laughs> you just need one of these Tesla turbines in there to power the engine that produces the electricity. You see. Shouldn't weigh more than about 10 pounds. For the generator, I recommend a heavy-duty, high-amperage automotive alternator, such as the type used on heavy equipment, or a high-output, lightweight alternator designed for power generators, normally having an engine of about 30 horsepower. It will be necessary to use step-down gearing to reduce the speed of the turbine so that at the optimum or most efficient operating RPMs of the turbine, which would be about 25,000 RPMs, it will be stepped down to the optimum operating RPMs recommended for the alternator. For example, if the alternator is to run at 1,200 RPMs and the turbine at 25,000 RPMs, the gearing would have to function at a 20 to 1 ratio. A battery will also be required to supply the appropriate exciter voltage and to store electrical energy for appliances and other necessary on-demand current. Only herringbone gears should be used in the gearbox. By using an unrectified AC current from the alternator, it should be possible to route it directly into the high-voltage transformer with a variac to regulate it. For example, if the alternator produces 3 cycles per revolution at 1200 RPMs, it would produce the approximate 60 cycle current for the high voltage transformer. The high voltage transformer, or transformers, should be capable of producing a high amperage output commensurate to the horsepower of the turbine. A neon light transformer producing 0.030 amps at 15 kilovolts would amount to only 450 watts in the secondary for a generator which could produce 45 kilowatts or more. To be on the safe side, you should use transformers for each pancake module, which have high voltage ratings of at least 5 kilowatts in their secondaries, totaling almost 50% of the alternator's capacity. I can't imagine that this system would be inadequate. This would be enough power to run about 50 Tesla coils of the powerful types which I have run off the Neon Lights Transformers. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So if you're not familiar with electrical generators and perhaps gearboxes and mechanical things of that sort, that portion might sound a little bit confusing, but it's not much different than, say, a drive shaft for a car. Essentially what he's de describing here with the turbine and how it all works together with the alternator to produce current and attaches to the generator, <laughs> generates the electricity. And it does give off gases because, well, if you're going to use propane or something to power the thing, it is going to have to have an exhaust because, you see, it is burning fuel. And you wonder why they want to switch to electric cars, right? Because, you know, if anybody could figure out that they could do it cheaper and easier with something like propane or gasoline for certain things here, they could produce high-voltage electricity that way, then <laughs> sky's the limit, right? So there's a lot of different ideas that tie into this as well. But let's continue on. So next he talks about the high-voltage DC brush discharge. The high-voltage DC brush discharge allows equal exchange of the electric and magnetic tubes of force in opposite directions. 
The Tesla coil is tuned to one-quarter wavelength, emitting negative pulses, which are so rapid that the current continues to flow in the secondary during current reversals in the primary. This steady DC pseudo-electrostatic brush discharge has a greater effect on the independent ether carriers and rarefies them, exerting an elastic pulling force in the space in front of the ship. This induces the rapid exchange of the ether carriers through the front of the ship and draws the tubes of force into the conductor. In the DC secondary conductor, the tubes of force have nowhere to go and are forced to dissolve as new tubes of force continue to be brought in. This imparts momentum to the conductor, which must be firmly attached to the ship. The thing which makes the tuned Tesla coil the ideal contrivance for this purpose is the fact that the principles of high-frequency inductance make it possible to create very high DC potentials using a relatively small coil, which may be placed flat against the walls of the ship, powered by a compact alternator. This eliminates the need for the large and cumbersome parts of an electrostatic generator, which would produce only a fraction of the amperage of the Tesla coil and a greatly diminished exchange of the ether carriers and influx of tubes of force. It has also been shown that a DC pulse produces a greater effect in Hall effect pumping than a steady DC current. The negative DC pulse discharges will leave the inside of a closed hollow conductive vessel, such as a saucer is, and appear on the outer surface, as Michael Faraday discovered, which conveniently protects the pilot, crew, and internal contents of the saucer from the effects of electrostatic discharges. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So he's quoting Michael Faraday now. This is one of the, the things that Faraday discovered. It's called the Faraday cage. It prevents the effects of electrostatic charges from affecting what's inside the Faraday cage. So the contents on the inside of the ship would be safe from any kind of electrical discharges. Now on the outside of the ship, that's a different story. And we do see the descriptions of UFOs given where the whole of the ship glows various colors. Is that not a common trait in UFO sightings? That the, the hull of the ship of these flying saucers, when they are sighted as physical craft, they glow. This is also described various places in Dr. Paul LaViolette's book on anti-gravity research that he's done. He says, he makes the claim in that book that the B-2 stealth bomber, or stealth fighter, whichever one of the two it is, and it might be both of them, actually has a type of electromagnetic discharge on the surface of the vehicle in this way. It has this type of corona on it that it produces, and what this does is this effectively lessens the weight of the craft by 25%, which is another kind of validation of what's being said here. The electrification of the hull of the craft causes it to lose weight or gain buoyancy here, as Line is describing it here, and La Violette describes it as reducing the weight of the craft. So 
This gives some credence to the idea that these electrical charges on the surface of the vehicle can actually cause propulsion or cause this buoyancy reaction if produced in the proper fashion with these ways of steering it with these DC brushes as he calls them and these alternating current buffers on the back and bottom of the craft. Let's continue on there and we'll finish this up very soon. I hope I'm not losing folks. I hope this isn't too dry and sciencey sounding for a lot of you out there. It's interesting stuff in my view. I think this is valuable material. Honestly, I think it could be transformational if we were able to figure out how to make something like this work. Let's continue on. So next, high voltage, high frequency AC current. The high frequency current required to block the exchange of ether carriers and passage of the tubes of force through the rear of the ship behaves with a skin effect, which means it travels over the surface atoms or the skin rather than through the internal mass of the conductor, as well as the skin of other solid condu conductive bodies. This phenomenon also provides some convenient protection for crew members from the effects of this type of current. Aside from the phenomenon of the skin effect of high-frequency alternating current, internal circuits must be highly insulated and shielded where necessary. With care given to shielding of the pilot and crew or passenger from possible high-voltage radiation dangers, the pancake-type coils have a higher threshold for arcing at a given voltage than cylindrical or conical ones, which makes them best for these very high-voltage applications. Care must be taken at all times in the design of high-voltage circuits that the close proximity of conductors having high opposite potentials is avoided and sufficiently insulated and spaced where necessary. Silicone rubber, transformer oil, formica, and plexiglass are good insulators, and there is a dielectric paste, which is excellent. There is a tendency for the air close to the conductors to become ionized, creating pathways for the current to leak and arc through space to other conductors of opposite potential, whenever within range roughly governed by the parameters of 20 kilovolts per centimeter, at sea level pressure adjusted downward for higher altitude and correspondingly lower pressure, which requires the space be increased for the same difference in potential. Internal high-voltage corona leakage and arcing between conductors, components, or contacts can be suppressed by use of pressurized inert gas environments, increased air or gas pressures, solid rubber, plastic, oil, or paste insulators of high dielectric strength. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So essentially he's describing you need dielectric insulators on the inside portions of the craft in order for it to not accidentally leak discharges into the interior of the craft and maybe fry some circuits or fry some passengers. We don't need that, so... Due to the tremendous superiority of the electrical attractive force over the gravitational and aerodynamic forces, it should be possible to fly a saucer with a greatly diminished electric power system, but the saucer's control is a very sensitive matter, requiring the ability to activate the appropriate electrodes rapidly in response to a need to change directions of movement or to quickly correct inappropriate movements of the ship because of its great speed and ability to jump around without inertial momentum resistance. 
The main buoyancy coil, mounted in an area above the cabin, provides the negative brush discharge, which, when paired with the high-frequency AC coil beneath the cabin floor, accelerates the ship upward, as the force is balanced to maintain the saucer at a particular vertical position. The high-frequency current used on the bottom of the ship on hovering seems to be the equivalent to Dr. Cavour's door, which, when shut, stops the gravitational effects from forcing the ship to accelerate toward the Earth. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's talking about this Dr. Cavour, who had some theories on this electrical interaction here that he's speaking of. So I will definitely look more into Dr. Cavour's work because I'm not familiar with the methodologies and stuff which he's citing here. But I'm sure there's something to it. So let's continue on. The description in 19th century physics literature, as I documented in occult ether physics, especially the second edition, implies that a normal gravitating body moving relative to Earth within Earth's electric, magnetic, and gravitational fields naturally draws the tubes of force into itself where they are dissolved to impart momentum. The downward movement of the saucer can be affected by allowing it to drop by the force of gravity with power diminished, though it can be affected more rapidly by a reversal of the forces which accelerate it upward. But to eliminate unnecessary complexity and danger, I don't recommend this for a prototype. I'm going to pause for a moment. So he's saying that if you get really good at uh, flying this thing, you could actually reduce your power usage by maybe... Uh, you know, turning off the AC coil at one point and letting gravity pull it down uh, so you could land a little quicker and move towards the ground a little quicker. But that sounds pretty dangerous, doesn't it? But at any rate, yeah, let's continue reading. The discharge electrodes shown in these plans are of the pancake coil type, which can be placed parallel to the interior walls of the ship and will be recipient of the momentum, which is imparted on the third axis perpendicular to the flat side of the coil at 90 degrees to the other two axes, which are the magnetic inductance and electric current axes. Placing the flat coils parallel to the outer walls will therefore orient the momentum perpendicular to the outer surface of the ship. Next, he talks about horizontal travel. Now that we have figured out vertical travel here, or how to get the ship into the air through the, this buoyancy principle, next he talks about horizontal travel. Horizontal travel is affected by a pairing along the ship's longitudinal axis of the two electrodes, the DC brush at the front and the high-frequency AC current to the rear. It was believed at one time by Heinrich Hertz, that two systems of varying current should exert a ponderomotive force on each other due to their variations, but Tesla proved that the ponderomotive force is due to the respective rarefaction and compression of the ether carriers produced by different kinds of currents, DC current, AC current, and rapidly varying electrostatic forces, and their effects on the ether, and he does give a notation here where he got that from. And let me see. So that is listed in one of Tesla's works. His lecture before the AIEE at Columbia College in New York, May 20th, 1891. So this seems like it could be the real deal. 
for what we would call an electrogravitic propulsion system here. This ponderomotive force, spoken of by Heinrich Hertz and also verified by Tesla, but he gave the description here slightly differently than Hertz did, and he described it using this effect on the ether, using the ether physics model. <laughs> Let's continue on and we'll wrap it up here in the next couple of minutes. Construction of the hull. Due to the magnitude by which the electrical attractive force is greater than the gravitational attractive force, tremendous stress is created on the hull of a saucer, which must therefore be constructed very strongly. While a spherical shape readily lends itself to such requirements, internal structuring members and walls should be designed, constructed, and positioned for maximum rigidity and strength to prevent the possible pulling apart of or crumpling of the hull, as this would be the supreme misfortune. Construction of entrance and exit ports and other such contrivances should anticipate powerful stresses, since openings are generally points of weakness. It is desirable that the hull have a smooth and continuous conductive outer surface, which has little or no small diameter protuberances, and as few weak or blank spots in it as possible, caused by such things as windows... And he says, see the simplified drawings and plans below for available excellent sources of technical construction literature with material suppliers. Windows must be strong, thick material that's firmly attached. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So it seems to me that this description he's giving here makes sense in context of what's described when people see these UFO vehicles. It didn't seem to have any seams or anything on it, is one of the ways they describe it. All one piece, no obvious doors or anything like that. Very smooth and rounded surfaces, this kind of thing. Makes sense, doesn't it? With what he's describing here. Uh, next portion here, let's get on with this. The power plant. Since the electrical attractive force is so much greater than the gravitational attractive force, it is lo a logical... Sorry, it is logical that a relatively small engine, such as the Tesla turbine or a snowmobile or motorcycle engine, would be adequate to power an alternator of sufficient power for this size saucer. Tesla designed his tiny turbines and remarkable high-frequency alternators for this purpose, and they would be preferable. An independent air intake and exhaust system separate from the air supply for the cabin must be provided with careful attention to preclude the mixture of exhaust gases with the air supply for the crew and pilot. Batteries may be sufficient to supply electrical power for a saucer with a small engine used periodically to recharge the battery system as needed. As shown below in special supplementary notation on the World War II German flying saucers, construction of manned hot rod type saucers or spheres, perhaps only four feet in diameter, may be feasible, possibly using automotive spark coils, perhaps similar to some of the Foo Fighters seen and photographed by Allied bomber crew, gunnery crews in the skies of World War II Germany. The atmospheric nitrogen-oxygen combustion system invented by Tesla for the production of electrical energy from the air is too complex to be covered here, and there is insufficient information as to just exactly how the system was constructed and used to produce useful energy. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's 
relating back once again to Nazi saucer technology, which there were some acknowledged programs going on. And he's claiming that these small, round, ball-shaped ones that could possibly fit, like, say, one pilot or something, that this was be conducive to what was described as Foo Fighters during World War II. And you thought it was just a band, right? <laughs> but anyway, let's continue on, and we're almost done here. We'll wrap it up. So, seating and visibility. Ultralight, strong fiberglass bucket seats with seat belts are recommended. The closer the pilot's eyes to the windshield, the smaller the windows required for visibility. With care taken to electrically insulate the pilot's head from the ceiling, a spherical shape will provide better visibility than a discus shape, and a wide-angle optical viewer might be provided directly downward between a solo pilot's legs if desired. This type of saucer involves a restricted pilot position, but since the saucer is so fast, satisfying flights over great distances should be of short duration. Small video cameras, such as those often used on race cars or by skiers having wide-angle lenses, might be mounted in the saucer surface with view screens around the interior of the cabin. For a small hot rod type saucer, as these plans describe, there are several inconveniences which must be tolerated in the name of practicality and economy. The more wealthy builder will naturally find a way to include as much luxury in high-tech controls, accessories, and other facilities as he can afford or desire. So next he talks about number three, the flight suit. The flight suit should provide electrical and heat insulation with ultraviolet protection for the eyes. An insulated cold water wetsuit might work well. Since a pilot will be looking out ports which are near the hull surface, the helmet should provide extra thick electrical insulation to prevent arcing or electric shock to the head. In general, the suit should provide UV radiation protection, preferably by the use of special plastic already developed for this purpose. And he says in parentheses here, note, it was rumored early in the program in the 1950s that only women pilots were used, since the male scrotal cavity is particularly sensitive to the electrical radiation problems of the saucers. Ouch. <laughs> That's all we have to say about that. Ouch. Uh, so let's continue on, though. Ironically, the kind of pullover headgear used by actors or pilots, often used to fake the appearances of aliens, might be an ideal design for a saucer pilot's headgear, with thick layers of foam insulation in the top, representing the bulbous brain cavities often depicted by on the phony aliens, and the sunglass lens eye covers which provide UV protection. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now remember, the whole premise of this guy's book is that the whole concept of these alien flying saucers being sighted here and recorded and such is a psychological military operation. That's the whole premise of his book. So these are some of the claims he made. He claimed there were early programs that were going on where they were experimenting with these types of craft some of them during World War II and prior to World War II, and also afterwards. And that maybe, just maybe, the flight suits they used gave people pause to think that uh, they were seeing an alien. So these are the kinds of things he's talking about in here. But let's continue on. Now next he has listed here simplified drawings and plans. 
The following drawings, including nomenclature, are presented in a simplified format. The details of each particular part or section are left to the creative imagination, ingenuity, and resourcefulness of the individual reader or experimenter, with the author presenting his own suggested design predicated to provide the least possible obstacles in procurement of materials and actual construction. The skilled experimenter will also recognize that there are relatively simple methods for construction of a scientifically adequate test scale model, and only a fool would embark on such a project without making such a test, with care taken to ensure that the model is suspended by insulative string running through pulleys so that the power may not drain to ground. Such details of saucer construction, as particular metals and other materials, fabrication and technology, are generally omitted from these plans since a complete detailed set of working drawings with accompanying technical literature could conceivably require ten times the length of this book. As an excellent source for materials and techniques, I recommend Andrew C. Marshall's Composite Basics. This book even describes honeycomb metals and other metal plastic bonding and structural materials and techniques, etc., and provides sources for a wealth of expert home-built aircraft construction materials and literature of many kinds. Aluminum, though light, may not be the best metal because there are so many bonding problems with the metal. I am recommending stainless steel since the electromagnetic flux used to divert the brush discharge for turning must be able to pass through the outer shell. Alright folks, so that's the end of the portion where he describes how to build a flying saucer. The next session, section, he goes into certain special supplementary notations on the World War II German flying saucers, which may give a little bit more context as to the actual history of where many of these scientific discoveries have come from. There's a lineage there, folks, of a human technology that it was basically built and tested for many years in many different parts of the world, experimented with, observed, cited by witnesses, and described in various ways. And this is the important part. It's a human technology. UFOs are simply unidentified flying objects. It means you don't know what it is but it's definitely something that's flying. Many of these things have been sighted. Many of them are natural phenomena. Many of them are various misdescribed things that we may not understand. Natural phenomena or uh, misidentified birds or aircraft of some sort. And some of them are truly mysterious. Some of them defy what we know about the material world we live in. Some of them are definitive craft that perform in ways that our modern physics would say is not possible. But keep in mind, these two are likely these man-made craft. Because here's the common sense way of looking at it. If you see an object in the sky, and you could tell it's a constructed object, it's a manufactured object, and it doesn't look like anything you've seen before or are familiar with, with the common publicly known aircraft. 
your first thought should be, well, there's an aircraft. I know human beings exist, and I know human beings build aircraft. Therefore, the most likely scenario, the Occam's razor way of thinking, is that this is something constructed by a human being somewhere. And this is exactly what we've been conditioned through various mind control operations here in PSYOPs to not think. When we see something in the sky that defies an explanation of how it actually flies or maneuvers or how it doesn't even look like anything we would recognize as a human craft, that we would automatically jump to the idea of aliens. Well, this has largely been done through science fiction and through entertainment programming and various things. Our minds have been conditioned to jump to that conclusion. And that's not the case. That's not the common sense way of thinking about it. It would be no different than looking in the sky and seeing this craft there and saying, Unicorns! No, it's it's not unicorns. I think everybody will agree there's not unicorns up there flying aircraft or spacecraft, right? (laughs) Well, why would you think aliens are then? It's the same kind of a thing. But this is how we've been manipulated, socially engineered, to accept some of these ideas. And you know why? Because it gives plausible deniability to governments and intelligence organizations for their involvement in developing these secret technologies and keeping the developments hidden from the public for various reasons, reasons of which are the development, the potential development of free energy, of faster than light speed travel almost instantaneous travel anywhere that we would want to go and also potentially the discovery of where it is we really exist because if your average person had access to a machine like this or a device like this so that he could travel anywhere he wants very very quickly and rapidly we would quickly discover where it is we exist, what it looks like, what it really is, what the boundaries thereof are. And this would free our minds from the prison planet design that they've given us, that they want us to think we exist in. You see? Because that's what it is. That whole prison planet description that has been given people by various researchers doing this kind of work. It's a misnomer. It's a double reverse. You see, the whole notion here is if there's nowhere else to go, if we can't travel beyond the bounds of what we call planet Earth here, that changes your perception of reality. That changes what you would accept is true. That would make you have to concede that perhaps there is a creator, that this was intelligently designed. Now, if we are just an infinitesimally small ball spinning in the vast reaches of the void of outer space, out in the universe as an accident that arose, then they would want to reify that idea with you. And they would want you to travel to space to see what it is. So I would say that they would offer some type of a technological way to do so. So that being the case, 
what are they hiding from us aside from simply free energy technologies and various things i think it has to do with the very nature of reality folks but anyway we're gonna call it a night there i want to thank you all for tuning in i appreciate each and every one of you we'll catch you next time Everybody come with me